Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Last week we began a new series, and the Lord willing, we will be looking at two of the capital vices or deadly sins as they are known. Just by way of review, the word vice, the word vices, is not found in the Bible. But the concept is certainly there. What is a vice? It is, in fact, a habit or character trait. It's not necessarily something we are born with. It's like an extroverted personality or some type of health issue, a predisposition to certain things. Both vices, excuse me, vices and virtues are acquired moral qualities. So we can cultivate habits or break them down over time through our repeated actions. As a result, I think studying vice or vices can really be a catalyst for us in terms of spiritual growth. As I said last week, when we study the issue of vices, we actually have to fight sort of a two-front war in dealing with it. The first is on the Christian front. That is to say, we need to distinguish between sin or sins and a vice or vices. The following analogy I find helpful. A sin or sins are snapshots. There are moments in time when we do something or think a particular thing. It's something that we do. A vice, on the other hand, is like a movie. It's like a film. It's, an, it's a series of pictures over time. And so, as Christians, oftentimes, I think we confuse the issues of sins and vices. Um, vices are composed of sins, but we should not... We need to think of sins as individual acts, and oftentimes we focus on the individual acts rather than a pattern of behavior. Okay? The second front is the secular front. And here, as we saw last week, the modern or contemporary culture tends to either dismiss vices, redefine them into virtues, um, psychologize them, or in fact simply trivialize them. And as we live in this culture, we may in fact find ourselves profoundly influenced by such thinking. So if the word vices isn't found in the scripture, where did the idea come from? Well, the idea of capital vices or the deadly sins emerged in the fourth century from a group of men we know as the Desert Fathers. These were men who deliberately withdrew into the desert in the southern part of Egypt to face temptation and sin head on, to cultivate a contemplative spirit through prayer, and to follow the example of Jesus in his wilderness temptation. Based on the experiences of these men, a list was set down of thoughts or demons that typically beset someone who was one of the desert fathers. The first list that we had had eight vices included in it, or eight demons. Gluttony, lust, avarice, sadness, anger, sloth, vainglory, pride. What is worth noting about this list is that it was intended to deal with the individual hermit or monk that was living out in the desert. Someone who was not living in a community, but someone who was living by himself. The second time we find this list, the list is now applied to a community. It isn't simply an individual out by himself facing temptation, but the community, the people of God. And the list is the same. The order is different, but you have the same eight vices. 
The third list came about two centuries later from Gregory the Great, and it was pared down from eight to seven. Vainglory, envy, sadness, avarice, wrath, lust, gluttony, and then pride was seen as sort of the root vice and everything else, all the other sins came from this. You will notice that envy was added. This was not something that was included among, by the uh, Desert Fathers. And sloth was put in in the place of sadness. What the hermits had called, or what the Desert Fathers had called sadness, is now replaced by sloth. That's worth noting for us, because sloth is what we are going to look at today. In the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas gave another list, vainglory, envy, sloth, avarice, wrath, lust, gluttony. Pride, again, is the root of the seven vices. And envy, again, is on the list, and sloth has replaced sadness. Today, though, I think most Christians would say there are seven vices. They put pride at the top of the list. Envy, sloth, greed, wrath, lust, and gluttony. You'll notice that vainglory is missing, which is interesting for us because that will be the second vice that we will look at in this series. Why study the vices? I mean, why spend our time on this? One reason is that Christians who have come before us, believers, have struggled and learned and through their experiences have taught about the vices. They've developed a community of Christians seeking to live out their discipleship through daily disciplines. So where the Desert Fathers might have been hermits by themselves, as time has gone on, these vices have been experienced or fought by the church as a community. Um, and we are part of that community. And so I think it is important for us to understand that. Identifying and struggling against vice is not, please listen, is not an individualistic psychological self-help program. This is something that is to be done in community. It was and is the grace and disciplined formation of the body of believers seeking to become more and more like Jesus Christ. What I hope to do in this series is to focus on those two vices, sloth and vainglory. I don't know the Lord... Perhaps we will look at all seven over time, but it is my plan at this point to look at the two for several reasons. And I mentioned this last week in the conclusion. First of all, I think sloth is really misunderstood. People see it merely as a synonym for laziness. It is much more than that, I hope to show. And vainglory is what drives much of contemporary culture today. So most people don't see it as a problem, let alone being a vice. And that's why it's been dropped from the modern list of, ver of vices or of deadly sins. Another reason for picking these two is that the case could be made, and many people would argue that sloth is a problem for immature Christians, for young Christians. And vainglory is a problem more for mature Christians. And we certainly see this in the writings of Augustine that even as a mature Christian, as the Bishop of Hippo, he saw himself struggling with vainglory. I think in reality they're dangerous to all of us. And so don't say, okay, well, I'm a mature Christian. I'll not listen to the sloth part. I think, in fact, it affects all of us. So today we will look at sloth. We will begin to. We will not finish it today. One might argue that sloth is a supposed vice in part because most people don't see it as a serious problem, let alone a vice or a deadly sin. One author has written, most of the world's troubles seem to come from people who are too busy. 
If only politicians and scientists were lazier, how much happier we should all be. The layperson is preserved from the commission of all the most nastier, nastier sins. In other words, you know, if we could all just sort of chill a bit, relax, and maybe be a little bit slothful, <clears throat> life might be a lot better off. The problem is that people equate sloth with being lazy or being inactive or being afflicted by inertia. In the secular view, diligence is a virtue that is extolled. And a slacker is someone who is slothful, if you wish. Henry Ford said many years ago, work is our sanity, our self-respect, our salvation. Through work and work alone, may health, wealth, and happiness be secured. Um, I, I disagree with him, but I think you see that even for people who are not believers, sloth can be seen as a real problem, as a real vice. It is worth noting that living in the industrial era, industriousness is a virtue that many people espouse. It's a pragmatic virtue to be profitable and to be professional and to be successful. When careers replace religion as a source of meaning, worth, and identity, laziness is really seen as a serious problem. And to be a slacker is something that is seriously frowned upon. In a society that measures personal wealth, I'm sorry, personal worth in terms of productivity, efficiency, and maximization of our potential, we better get busy or we might in fact see ourselves as being good for nothing. But that is a secular view of sloth. What is a Christian view? In a Christian view, sloth is seen as being opposed to the virtue of diligence. We have seven virtues, we have seven vices, and there's not always a one-to-one correspondence, but in this case, Sloth is the vice and diligence is seen as the virtue. A sense of responsibility, of dedication, and of conscientious completion of one's duties. And hard work and dedication are an expression, their best, of love. It is worth noting that the English word diligence comes from the Latin word diligere, which means to prize to esteem highly, to love. And so that diligence is, in fact, founded in love. In this light, sloth is apathy, it is comfortable indifference, it is the neglect of the duties of other human beings' needs. So if you don't work hard, you don't care enough. And sloth becomes a sin not merely because it makes us lazy, but because there is the lack of love. The lack of love is what is behind the laziness. In the Old Testament, and particularly as we've been going through the book of uh, Proverbs, as he has been reading to it, we hear a lot about the sluggard, you know, the person who doesn't do what he's supposed to do. In Proverbs 6, Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. This is an Old Testament view of what it means to be a sluggard. But it isn't simply Old Testament. It is, in fact, a biblical view. In the New Testament and in our text today, Paul also addresses the issue of working. 
if you will look at first or second Thessalonians, I'm sorry, first Thessalonians chapter four, verses eleven and twelve. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life will, may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This is Paul's take on what it means to work and to be diligent. But I want you to look at what comes before this. We looked at verses 11 and 12. Look at verses 9 and 10. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. And then Paul talks about making it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to work with your hands. More on this in a bit. It may be, as you're sitting there, you may think, of the seven vices, Damon, this is one that is not a problem for me. I am not a lazy person. I am hardworking. Carelessness, apathy, laziness, lack of effort are not problems in my life. But what if, in fact, busyness and workaholism are not virtuous, but rather classic symptoms of sloth as well? You see, the case can be made that a person who is apathetic and a person who is perpetually in motion both reveal a heart that is afflicted by the vice of sloth. How can this be? I mean, if you have someone who doesn't do anything and you have someone who's always doing something, how can they both be guilty of the same vice? Well, what we need to do is go back to the original definition of sloth that was found on the four, among the 4th century Desert Fathers. It was developed by medieval theologians and continues in the Christian tradition today of spiritual formation. This is the description that was given by one in the 4th century. The demon of Asidia, let me just say, I've seen it pronounced both Asidia, it's A-C-E-D-I-A, or Akedia, means sloth. Also called the noonday demon is the most oppressive of all the demons. It attacks a monk about the 4th hour, that's 10 in the morning, and besieges his soul until the 8th hour, that's 2 in the afternoon, First of all, he makes it appear that the sun moves slowly or not at all, and that the day seems to be 50 hours long. Then he compels the monk to look constantly toward the windows to jump out of the cell to watch the sun to see how far it is from the ninth hour, that is three o'clock, to look this way and that. And further, he instills in him a dislike for the place and for his state of life itself, for manual labor, and also the idea that love has disappeared from among the brothers and there is no one to console him. He, that is a demon, leads him, the monk, on a desire for other places where he can easily find the wherewithal to meet his needs and pursue a trade that is easier and more productive. He adds that pleasing the Lord is not a question of being in a particular place, for scripture says that God can be worshipped everywhere. The Desert Fathers chose the Greek word asidia, <coughs> to speak of this noonday demon. Why? Well, literally, asidia means lack of care. They saw it as a vice expressed in dejection or even oppressiveness or even disgust. They saw sloth not as laziness per se, 
That's, I think, a very modern view. Rather, it is frustration and hate discussed in the place and life itself. In Asadiyah, as the Desert Father saw it, the monk abhors what God has given him. Namely, the reality of where he is and the limits of that reality. In a real sense, sloth rejects happiness, what God intends for his creatures, and chooses sorrow instead. And I find it interesting that the time came when sloth replace sadness in the vices because, in fact, they are seen by the Desert Fathers as synonyms. Sloth is a sad rejection of a loving, intimate union with the Creator, so says Aquinas. It is worth noting that as Aquinas wrote on sloth, which he did quite a bit, interesting enough, he said sloth is an aversion to the divine good in us. We need to recognize that, in fact, We live in a time of open revolt against God's law. It is a time of sloth. People are unhappy. People are not marked by love. They are not marked by care. It's a time of sloth. You see, rather than delighting, or rather than causing delight and comfort, the story that God tells of creation is thought to be repugnant to our freedom. That is, when people read scripture and they read that God created the world and he has set boundaries and physical boundaries for the ocean, for example. But he has also set boundaries in terms of our behavior. Rather than delighting in this, people find themselves disgusted by it. It's repugnant. How dare he tell us what to do? People see themselves as rulers countermanding the law of God all other laws. Any limit of any kind is seen as an obstacle to overcome rather than to be considered as the graciousness of being. Think, those of you as parents, when you tell your children you can go up to here but you can't, get any, you can't go any farther, you're doing it for their safety, for their protection. It's not because you hate them. It's not because you're trying to be oppressive to them. It's not because you're being cruel. It is you love them and you don't want them to fall or to get hurt or anything, this is what you do. But we live in a time when freedom is seen as the ultimate virtue, and so any idea that you would say, no, this, this is where the limit is, is in fact seen as something to be rejected. Because our world is at war with God, people fear anything outside of our control that threatens our freedom. Just a side note, and I think this fits in, I hope you can fit it in your thinking. As modern people, we are tempted to consider the world as a place of resource, that the things we see around us are resources, and they are simply waiting for us to make use of them. So in a sense, they really have... They really have no purpose until we give them purpose. Okay. So we tend to see God's creation as, in fact, objects. And in the modern world, objective knowledge is seen as better as subjective knowledge. 
And so this chair really has no purpose until I see it as an object and I say this is a chair and something that I can sit in and be comfortable. This is the way we see the world. We see God's creation, not as his creation, but as sort of this limitless resource bank, if you wish, and we can go in and withdraw any time that we want to. And as a result, um, rather than seeing things as delightful, because you would think, you know, if the whole world is there for me to make use of, this would make me happy. But that's not how we're supposed to see things. And so, ironically, we become unhappy. We become sad. This is not what God intended. If we go back to the beginning, we read, and we should not be surprised, but I think we do, in fact, underestimate the statement, God saw, saw all that he had made, and it was very good. That God's creation, apart from us, apart from humanity, is in fact very good. Do we remember that all of reality is relational? This is made clearer in chapter 2 when we are told that God saw that it was not good for the man to be alone. How is it that we are to view human beings? God gives to those who are made in his image the work of being like God. We are made in God's image Therefore, we are to do what God does. We have the capacity to act freely, but more than that, we are to love. And we are to delight in all good things. And the first hymn we sang today, who in all good things delight us. God delights in his creation, we should as well. And God loves his creation, and we should as well. God made us in his image and he has given us callings. He has given us responsibilities. He has given us tasks. He gave Adam the unique task of cultivating the ground, a responsibility not given to animals. So we read in Genesis 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Did you notice something there? God's intent, God's plan for man is to have dominion over creation. That's what he tells us in chapter 1. Be fruitful and multiply, have dominion over creation. That's what we are supposed to do. So what does God do? God plants a garden and then puts the man there to take care of the garden. If you wish, it is God who does it first. And then he says to Adam, this is what you're supposed to do. Because Adam is made in God's image. It isn't that God threw Adam out on the planet and said, okay, go out, go out and have dominion. It is God who does it first. And for us, it is God who delights in his creation first. And we should as well. It is God who plants the garden and then instructs Adam as to what he is to do. I'm convinced that work is not our salvation, as Henry Ford would have us believe, but it is, in fact, instruction on who we are as those who are made in the image of the Creator. We are taken from the earth and we are put here for the earth. We are to care for God's creation. In a very real sense, it is in work that we come to realize what it means to be human, one made in the image of God. It is in work that we fulfill the calling of being one who is made in the image of God. And the image of God 
includes love. And sloth is marked by the absence of love. There is no law of love. There is no diligence. It's simply we will do whatever it is that we want. In her book, Glittering Vices, A New Look at the Seven Deadly Sins and the Remedies, Rebecca DeYoung entitled the chapter on sloth, Resistance to the Demands of Love. Demands? Love? Those are two words that we would normally not want to put together. If we see freedom as the ultimate virtue, then I'm free to love whomever I want. And that's what's great about love, that you, you, you're free to love whoever you want. Um, if you put a demand on me, then suddenly it seems a little bit less loving, perhaps wrong or even inferior. That free love is superior to any type of demands of love. But listen to what Peter wrote in his second epistle. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his, his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Interesting. Participate. We're made in God's image. We are being recreated in the image of Christ and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For that very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. And there it is. We are to make every effort and yet Peter starts out by saying he has given us everything that we need uh, for life and godliness. But when he's finished, he says, it's love. It is love that binds us all together. In the next verse, he says, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In short, they will keep you from the vice of sloth. You see, in the same way that we were made in the image of the Creator, and we are to follow His example, delighting in His creation and working, through the work of Christ, we are being remade in the image of Jesus Christ. Sloth is not primarily a feeling, okay? It is, in fact, a well-entrenched and willful resistance to what God wants. It isn't just that, yeah, I'm too tired, I can't do that. Sloth, as it is seen, has been seen by the church for centuries now, is in fact a refusal to do what God wants. It is a resistance. It is saying, no, I choose to do what I want. Now, what you may want to do is nothing. And in that sense, we say, okay, then you're lazy. And that's would say, okay, that's the person over here, the slacker. But it may be workaholism. It may be your job, your career. That that is what gives your life meaning. And so that's why people on opposite ends of the work spectrum could in fact be guilty of the same vice of sloth. In sloth, we resist our identity in Christ and his presence in our lives. We balk at the invitation of God to be imitators of him, as we read in Ephesians 5. 
See, the battle for us, and this, this is where I said the two-front war, as Christians, if we're not careful, we focus on sins rather than a pattern of living. And so if, if that's how we think, then we think, oh, the battle is between the body and the soul. Or it's between the physical and the spiritual. That, that's the, where the, the fight is going on. Um, there is that, but I think that is quite secondary. Rather, sloth is the old me resisting being transformed into what God wants me to be. The old me wants to stay the way things are. That's sloth. What God wants is to transform me into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. If we are afflicted by sloth, we have chosen to reject relationship with God as the way to be who he wants us to be, as the road to fulfillment. And instead, we've chosen something else. And so a person who's a workaholic, yeah, they can be afflicted by sloth as well because that is where they find their meaning. Like Henry Ford, that is their salvation. Because rather than looking to God and choosing a relationship with God as the basis of fulfillment, they choose something else. If we are afflicted by sloth, we are trying to make ourselves content by being less than what we really are. God wants us to be more than we are. That's why he is in the process by his spirit and by the church transforming us, sanctifying us. But if we are afflicted by slothfulness, we're like, whatever, we'd just rather go our own way. Do you remember the words of Jesus? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Let's assume for a moment that we don't know what that means. It still sounds a lot, sounds like a lot of hard work. And sloth prefers the easier road. And as such, it is a deadly sin. It is a capital vice. In our world today, There is, it's not a synonym, but it goes hand in hand with sloth, and that is boredom. The modern Western world is, in fact, afflicted by bored sloth. Modern people struggle to find the world beautiful or good or of any worth. And once the world and the people in the world are thought to be worthless, then they bore people. The world isn't something of beauty anymore. I remember Tom's example, the commercial of someone taking a picture of the Grand Canyon. And rather than seeing this as something delightful, technology has replaced it. People are so easily bored. And people struggle to find worth in other persons or themselves. But what is ironic, and this is a fight that you and I need to get into in our own lives, is that people today like being bored. This is not something they want to give up. Because they are bored because things don't have meaning or don't have any beauty or any worth. And so the world is meaningless until the individual assigns them meaning. And so we can treat people 
and things exactly as we wish because we are the ones who give the meaning. I mentioned this before. Uh, Daniel Borson defined a celebrity who's somebody who's well-known for being well-known. We are the ones who give well-knownness, if you wish, to this celebrity. And as modern people, we sort of like that. We sort of like that. That rather than creation being something that God has done and something that he delights in, he saw that it was very good. Eh, Whatever. We are modern people and we find ourselves being bored. What we find is that boredom and sloth has become for us a cultural reality. This is, I'm convinced, the mark of the West in the 21st century. And the call of Christ runs counter to this. If we are going to take up our cross, then we cannot, we cannot continue to have or to be these people who are just bored with all things. I think one could make the case that our thinking is less like that of Jesus Christ and more like that of the surrounding culture. You see, the description of the contemporary culture that I've just given could, in fact, describe us. Do we struggle to find the world beautiful, good, of worth? Do we find the world and the things of this world to be worthless and boring? Do we struggle to find worth in other persons? Do we find this boredom difficult to give up? I think we truly need to ask ourselves, are we afflicted by the vice of of sloth. And if we are, diligence is the answer. And diligence is rooted in love. So that going back to our text, before Paul talks about working and about living a quiet life, he talks about love, that we are to love each other. And he says to the Thessalonians, you know, you already know this. We don't need to tell you about this. But you know what? I'm going to tell you, we urge you to do this more and more. We are to love one another. And in the church, as a congregation, if we can practice love and be diligent, then we've taken the first step toward fighting the vice of sloth. Let's pray together. Father, I suspect that we would rather think of the Christian struggle as dealing with individual sins. And there is that. But the idea of a way of thinking or a pattern of behavior or of habits, I think we've lost sight of. Unlike our brothers and sisters in the past, we don't think in terms of vices. We think of individual And one might even say petty sins. And living in a world afflicted by sloth and boredom, we've we've failed to recognize that we we are afflicted as well. The two great commandments are to love you and to love our neighbors. But love, if love is not there, then when we look at your creation, We struggle to find any beauty in it. We struggle to find any worth in it. And the same happens when we look to other people. 
oftentimes when we don't want to deal with big issues, we trivialize them. And so sloth becomes laziness. That's it, just being a slacker. Rather than it being a lack of diligence, a lack of love, a lack of concern. You made us in your image. We are to love and we are to work. That has been marred by sin, but Jesus has come to redeem us. And now you are remaking us by your grace and your spirit. Help us as we struggle, as we seek to put off sloth and to put on diligence and to be remade in the image of Jesus Christ. I thank you that you called us together today to worship you. We do pray for our dear sister Tess that you would strengthen her and comfort her in this difficult time. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. And in a world of sloth and boredom, may we by your grace be lights. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.